Okay, Cole. It's good to have you back. Jared was in your place. Thank you, Jared, for what you did last week. But my man, my main man, Cole is back. Cole was around the world. I seen him on the Instagram. So, Cole, how was the birthday and how was it out there? Yeah, it was it was actually pretty amazing. You know, other than this hurricane that came through, it stopped me from coming <laughs> home uh, Sunday, Monday. So I came home about I, mean, I got home at one a.m. yesterday. So all in all, it was pretty solid. That's that's good. You know, the hurricane was interesting because they made a big deal out of it. I went and and sandbagged at my parents' house in some place, and nothing happened. But I guess it's bet. Well, I shouldn't say nothing happened because there were some areas that yeah. were hit bad. But at least in our area, it was okay. Um, as you guys can see, I'm going to have a guest today. We're going to get this show started as usual. A little introduction music. Yes, over the week, me and my buddy Isaac recording at the OC recording studio. A little our own music so I don't get no YouTube hits with the copyright. So this is Never Satisfied featuring yours truly and my buddy Isaac Reese. Special guest in the house today. Instead of Terry Lamar, I'm Terry Lamar Winfrey when I got the guest. <laughs> My man Cole back. Everybody's in the building. Murph, aka Charlie Townsend, is in here. I'm excited. We're going to talk a little sports today. And here we have it. It's your host, Terry Lamar. Episode six, Cole tells me of the Never About the Cake podcast. And I have a, a special guest. I really, really appreciate him coming on. He actually has his own podcast. Let me make sure I get the, the right, the name. It's, it's Godfrey, right? right? Mark Godfrey. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me, let me, I got to, I told him I got to give him his flowers. So let me, let me read off his, you remember when the, um, in the Rocky Four, when they were introducing Apollo Creed and there was, and they were saying all his titles and stuff. So he played one year at Oral Roberts and three years at Alabama. Um, and he started as assistant coach at UCLA from 87 to 1995. 1995, I think, was a championship team mm -hmm. with Tyus Edney and Charles O'Bannon mm -hmm. and all those guys on there. Uh, and then he, his first coaching job was at Murray State. He went to Alabama, which is actually great because he actually got to coach for the school that he played three years for. So that's very interesting. NC State, and as recently, Cal State Northridge was his last, the last time you mm -hmm. stopped coaching, right? Mm -hmm. And you got a couple uh, accolades. SEC Coach of the Year in 2002, the Ohio Valley Conference Coach of the Year in 1998, also three Ohio Valley Conference regular season champs and two Ohio Valley tournament champs. Mm -hmm. That's actually a pretty good resume. Well, thank you. Yeah, appreciate so I, that. So I appreciate you coming on. The interesting thing is why I wanted to – you know, my show is usually different. It's about other stuff. But I like I like basketball. I love basketball. It's actually my first passion. I won't say it's my first love because I hate when people say that. Mm -hmm. So what actually – you obviously you've coached. You were just mentioning, I forgot, that you, in between the coaching, you were actually with the uh, scouting for the Davis, Dallas Mavericks. Mm -hmm. As a player, did you know when you were playing that you wanted to go into coaching or did you also have a dream of going to the league? You know, I was one of those guys that when I played, I knew I wanted to coach. You know, a lot of guys I played with, they struggled after, you know, basketball stopped because they really didn't know what they wanted to do. And a lot of times it, you know, there's a transition, especially if guys either, you know, don't make it in the NBA or they play overseas a little bit or they play in the NBA, then they stop. And, uh, you know, nowadays the money is so much greater. But back then, 
you know, guys still needed to work and you needed to have a career after that. But for me, I always knew I wanted to coach. My dad was a coach. My uncle was a coach. I was around it when I was little. So it just kind of felt like a natural thing for me to do. So uh, the transition was a lot easier for me, I think, than a lot of other people. Okay, so before, so before you got into coaching, you were playing. So what was the transfer protocol like then as opposed to now? So you transferred mm -hmm. from and you went to Alabama. Mm -hmm. Did you have to sit out or, mm -hmm. or how did it work? Well, back then, you know, every player in football and basketball. So the rule, a lot of people don't realize it. Most of your other sports uh, at the NCAA level in college, if you're golf, tennis, you know, you play lacrosse or soccer, you can transfer without sitting out. But for the longest time, basketball and football always had the rule where you had to sit out one season, one academic year. So for me, that was 1983, and I had to sit out that one year, which I actually think, think looking back on it, most of the guys in my era would probably agree, it was really a good thing. Um, you really got to work on your game. You got to develop. Your body developed. You became a little bit more mature. You're a little bit older. And, uh, you know, I can remember uh, as my career at Alabama, when I became a, a senior, you know, I was actually 23 years old. Mm. So, you know, we're playing against Rex Chapman, who played at Kentucky, played in the NBA a long time. And, mm -hmm. you know, he just turns 18. Well, mm. I'm 23. That's a big difference, yes. you know, back then. Mm -hmm. Now the rule is for football and basketball, it just got changed with this whole portal thing where, you know, kids can uh, transfer without sitting out. And it's really uh, – there's a lot of views on it, whether it's good or bad. But, uh, you know, it's, it's changed the landscape because now so many players, they're just kind of moving around, move to move. You know, I'm just moving to move. You know, I don't like yeah. my situation as yes. much or I didn't get to play as much this year, so I'm going to put my name in the portal. And, and so it's really kind of created a lot of chaos. But – um, I preferred it the way it used to be. Okay. But again, you know, times change, the rules change. You got to adapt, you got to move on. And that, I think it's here to stay. Quick question about that. I, I, I wonder now when you transfer, does your scholarship transfer mm -hmm. with you? But the school that you're going to, so if you have the, so Alabama would mm -hmm. have to take, if you were a full ride at your other school, mm -hmm. does Alabama take, then take on? Well, each, each school has in basketball for the longest time, it's been the same. They have 13 scholarships to give out. So however they want to, you know, when you walk away from the first school or transfer, like I did from Oral Roberts to Alabama, Alabama had to commit a, one of their 13 scholarships to me. So it wasn't like it followed me, okay. um, but Alabama made the decision to say, okay, you're going to be one of our 13 scholarship players at that time, and uh, that's the way it worked out. Okay. Now you mentioned, because I was going to ask you this, but you mentioned you kind of liked the rules, how they were back then. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you were both a player mm -hmm. and a coach, mm -hmm. which I think is important for, for coaching. Somebody that knows the rigors of the game, mm -hmm. that's actually went through it, what, give me your pros and cons for why, as a player, you would like to transfer mm -hmm. and why, as a coach, you don't like to transfer rules. Right. Well, here, here's what I would say. This is a great, that's a great question first, Terry. Transferring in itself is not bad at all. It works out a lot of times for people. It worked out for me. You know, I transferred and played on three straight Sweet 16 teams. I got drafted by the Detroit Pistons 1987. So the, when I transferred, there was no negative in that regard, it was a good thing for me to do. So I'm not one of those guys that would say, hey, you should never transfer. I don't believe in that at all. Sometimes you are in a situation where, you know, maybe it's not working out for you or you don't like it or you don't like the school or the school may not have your major or maybe you, you thought you were going to like the coaching staff and you don't. And there, there's all kind of different things that, that can come into play. But what I think what, what has happened is 
with the transfer portal in our sport, in basketball and in football, I think those two are kind of, uh, they go hand in hand. What we have now is as soon as something doesn't go your way, you're automatically thinking about I'm out because I can. I don't have to sit out. And I think what we've lost a little bit is we've lost, um, you know, trying to teach young people sometimes you can't always just run from a problem to somewhere else. Sometimes the answer is just to get better. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, sometimes, again, it's good for guys to transfer. Mm -hmm. But our numbers of transfers have dramatically, you know, a few years ago, 10 years ago, there might have been two or 300 kids in the whole country in basketball that would transfer. I think this year we're close to 2,000 kids. And so I worry a little bit about the message that, uh, as soon as something doesn't go your way, you're automatically thinking. The other thing about it, if you think about it, you have schools kind of at the top of the food chain. Mm -hmm. So let's say in basketball, your North Carolinas and Dukes and Indiana, Kentucky, UCLA, all those schools are kind of at the top of the food chain. The people at the bottom of the food chain, like a Long Beach State mm -hmm. or a UC uh, Irvine or a Appalachian State in North Carolina, kids are now going to those schools they're not maybe they're not being recruited at the highest level, but they're going to th go to those school and they're almost treating it like a junior college. Man, if I can get in there and I can just get off for a year and I can get 15 points a game and whatever, I'm, I'm going from there. I'm transferring up to Kentucky, you know, mm -hmm. which again isn't bad, but they're viewing the mid major or low major schools as just a stopping point. Mm -hmm. They're not fully invested into it. So, you know, there's always good and bad in everything. There, it's never all the way bad or all the way good. Mm -hmm. I guess probably having lived through both scenarios, I think in our sport, um, I, I, I like the fact that kids had to sit out. I think what's happening now, too, is you'll finish a game, we'll walk down and shake somebody else's, you know, on the other team's hand and whisper in their area, hey, I got a scholarship for you next year if you yeah. want to transfer. Mm -hmm. And guys are recruiting players right off the yeah. team you know, to another school. So yeah. I'm not sure that's that's healthy as well. You know, that's interesting because you making those points kind of made me shift what mm -hmm. I thought. Mm -hmm. I was always, you know, thinking in the in the broad terms because mm -hmm. I'm sure you heard this. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you should be able to leave your job for a better job. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, a lot of times it might not be, in the, if you have a responsibility, you mm -hmm. can't just go to your job right. and say, I'm just going to quit, quit right. a job mm -hmm. and another one's going to be available. Right. You might quit your job and might not be able to find work for mm -hmm. six months mm -hmm. and now you're in a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. So you would have to actually think, should I do this before making that decision? Mm -hmm. But I want you to explain, and I don't think what people understand this, even as a player, tell people the difficulties of coaching. I always tell people, it reminds me of a referee. There's never referees never have a home game. Somebody is always mad. Mm -hmm. As a coach, somebody's always mad because you have a player that feels like maybe he should get more time mm -hmm. or something else. And then the pressures that you have to make sure you keep your mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. Explain, you know, how you've dealt with that, navigate that over your long coaching career. Well, it's difficult, but here's the thing you always say, you know, if you want to be liked, don't go into coaching. Just don't go into it. Now, you know, the beauty of coaching is you get to build lifelong relationships with players and young guys that you know, and not every player you coach is going to, it's going to turn out that way. I ran into Toby Bailey the other night who played at UCLA, had the 26 point game in the national championship game, 1995. You know what I mean? He's just a beautiful, wonderful guy, you know, just a beautiful, and you know, I got to know him. I'd have to go back in my mind, probably 1990, uh, you know, 93 or four, maybe 92. And here we are still all these years later, you know, we have a relationship with Ed O'Bannon and Tyus Edney, mm -hmm. we talked about before we did the show. And so, those are the those are some of the great things about coaching. What's difficult now is 
because in the NBA, and it's a trickle down, everything trickle down trickles down from the top. Because there's so much money that's available now that players are getting paid at the highest level. And you see guys that are out there getting a $250 million contract. Well, that, that's generational wealth. That, that's not $200,000. $250 million now, that changes generations to come in my family. And the, what's happened is because you know the money has become so great that there's so much pressure on everybody to get there, you know, to get to that level. And uh, parents feel it. Parents want it. You know, kids want it. And, and uh, you know, my last couple of years I was at Cal State Northridge, I had guys on my team that didn't even have a scholarship offer anywhere. They, they were barely Division One basketball players. Mm -hmm. Yet in their mind, Coach, what do I got to do to get to the NBA? It's like, well, you understand the chances of you making it to the NBA are – about zero, but you know, you never want to say zero, but you know, you there's guys that are way better than you that are playing at UCLA and USC and Arizona and wherever else all around the country. So everybody uh, has their kind of eye on the prize of that. And what happens a lot of times is uh, parents get involved, you know, they're they want to, you know, kind of halfway coach your team. Um, it's hard to keep 13 guys happy, especially nowadays. It was hard in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but now it's really hard because the attention span and the, you know, everybody has a quicker trigger to pull. If it's not working out for me, I'm out. You know, I got to go somewhere else. And uh, so it makes it hard. But I think like in any profession, you kind of navigate through the, the minutia of, uh, okay, this isn't really much fun and that's not much fun. And, you know, I don't like that. And you concentrate on all the great things and the positive things and, you know, building that team unity and building relationships. Yeah. If you would have played for me and we bump into each other 30 years later or we're on the phone from now and, you know, you don't call, you know, your guys that play for, I don't call them every month or whatever, but every six months or a year, they'll reach out to me. I'll reach out to them and you're friends forever. Yeah. And so that's really the beauty and the fun part. If you ask most guys coaching, that's what they take away more than anything. Winning is fun. But, you know, the relationships you get with people probably, I think, is probably the most paramount thing. Yeah, I'm going to add something on when you mentioned about people think that it, and I think this is a misconception that goes around the mm -hmm. world because you hear a lot of players that have never played, oh, this person is trash because they're sitting on mm -hmm. the bench. And I'll share, I'll share stories. Mm -hmm. My dad, you know, you know, told me, well, you know, it's hard. You're like, you're not that good. Mm -hmm. Now, people be, oh, should be offended. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, you, you know, there's a different speed from high school to junior college. I mm -hmm. played at Rancho Santiago, mm -hmm. Coach Padgett. Mm -hmm. There's a different speed. Now I'm playing in uh, open open gym with Pooh Richardson. You know, Pooh Richardson, oh, that's my coach. We used to, I, I told people that I, I played with him for six months at Canoga uh, uh, Spectrum in Canoga Park. Mm -hmm. He didn't miss a shot for six months. Yeah. But people consider him not that great, right. but he had some years in the league. And this is when I knew I wasn't able to play. Michael Cooper is running open gym at UCLA, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's Lisa Leslie up there. Moani Mabika, so it's two two girls. My buddy is like six five. Lisa Leslie's throwing throwing elbows and everything. I'm like, bro, you got to play her hard. Like this is an Olympic player, mm -hmm. and and there's this guy named Joaquin Hawkins, and um, he was beating me to my spot every single time. And I and I usually do a little move, and I would get there, and he was already there, and that's what let me know like. This this yeah. is a whole different right. speed right. than what people think. And I tell people, I told my mm -hmm. boys all the time. When I was coming up, I thought shooting 200 shots was good. Mm -hmm. I really needed to be shooting 2,000 shots, <laughs> you know, to even try to 
uh, go to that level. So back to the coaching. Do you, are you done? Um, <clears throat> I never want to say I'm all the way done. College athletics with the NIL and the kids getting paid a lot of money nowadays in the transfer portal probably make it not as attractive. Um, you know, I was with the Mavericks for a while, and I've kind of, you know, talked to some people about potentially going back in the NBA. And one thing about the NBA that's different is um, it's just basketball. You know, you're, you're not trying to get guys to go to class. Uh, I don't have to have study hall at night. I don't have to recruit anybody. Uh, you know, I was at a, uh, an event the other day down in uh, San Diego, and some guys that I know is a kind of a consortium with a bunch of NBA guys, and we we're kind of sharing ideas. But, you know, when I coached before – you know, I have vacation, and I'm on this guy's boat in the Bahamas, and my assistant coach is calling me saying, hey, I got so-and-so's mom on the phone, and yeah, we got to get on the phone right now. So I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm on the phone talking to somebody's mother. Like, you just don't have a lot of time off. Mm -hmm. And uh, now the good news is for college sports, guys are getting paid a lot of money now. Mm -hmm. You know, coaches used to get paid, you know, a few hundred thousand, which was still a lot. Now you're talking about guys getting six, seven, eight million a year. Mm -hmm. So it's a different game. But for me uh, – I'm kind of enjoying what I'm doing, man. Yeah. I'm a pickleball nut. I play okay. pickleball every day. And uh, like you mentioned before, I've got a podcast here I've cranked up. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. And if the right opportunity uh, were to come, you know, I'll take a look at it. But I also say to everybody, I had a great run. I was mm -hmm. 35 years of pretty much, um, you know, there's 52 weeks in a year. I probably had five weekends off a, a year mm -hmm. for, for 35 years. And so you get to a point later where you say, you know, this isn't so bad. You know, yeah. this, this is kind of you get to a point where you've kind of earned, in my mind, a little bit. of You get a little time to kind of reevaluate and figure out what you want to do next. And that's kind of where I am right now. So I know you have uh, I believe it's four boys, four the, boys and a daughter, the four boys and a daughter. Looking back, does it is it hard on the on the kid? Now, when you went to mm -hmm. did you move the family mm -hmm. or do you, and they, do you look back on there? You think. I would do something different with that, or that's just the nature of uh, of coaching. College athletics different than the a lot of guys in the NBA. They'll have a home somewhere, and they'll just maybe go into that city and maybe get rent an apartment for you know nine months during the season. And college athletics is different. You have to be fully invested into that community and the speaking engagements, the booster club meetings, and all the things you have to do year round. So you know, I had two children born at UCLA Medical Center when I coached at UCLA. I had three born in Murray, Kentucky. Okay. My kids were in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama for uh, 11 years, which was actually a long time for coaches to be in one spot. You know, then we end up in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and, you know, they're going to school there. So kids kind of, you know, sons and daughters of coaches, they kind of get used to moving around. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't really understand how difficult that can be mm -hmm. for children sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, I had um, – you know, I moved my oldest son, who ended up playing football at Stanford. He was a really good athlete and a great, you know, a good student. But he had been to the same school from first grade to eleventh grade, and I move him as a twelfth grader. Mm. You know, and he's a prospect. You know, mm. he's a he's getting recruited. Um, my daughter moved as an eleventh grader, and so um, you know, it happens. It's part of it. It draws your family closer together okay. because you know you got to depend on each other. Probably my five kids, they're, they're adults now from 26 to 32 years old, but they're very close mm. because probably kind of had to be, you know, because yeah. they moved to a new town. They didn't know anybody, and it, it kind of drew them a little closer. So in everything we do, I always tell them, you know, there's always a silver lining. There's always good things that are going to happen. Yes, there's going to be difficult times. but um, And then, you know, when you're a son or daughter of a coach, 
you kind of get used to people either praising the, their father or chopping him, you know, mm-hmm. chopping him up, you know. And while we were winning at times, you know, my kids would hear stuff at school. And then if you go through a losing streak, you're not winning as much. You know, you know, there's some ninth grader that's just, you know, killing their dad. Like, you know, your dad sucks. You know, he's terrible. Mm-hmm. And so they get used to that. And they get used to kind of navigating kind of the haters a little bit. You know, yeah. we call them now. That's yeah. a great term I like. You know, yeah. you, everybody's, got them. everybody's and, got them. And you go into coaching and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they sit up in the 19th row and they really don't know if the ball is pumped or stuffed. Mm-hmm. They really don't know. But they think they know. Yeah. And uh, they got a lot of opinions. So even my kids, they started to kind of discern a little bit like, ah, you know, we're not listening to that guy. He's just, you know, they don't know. They, yeah. don't, they don't really know and they don't understand. And I think most coaches in their families, you just kind of get used to that. So speaking of people that have a lot of apparent uh, opinions, let's talk about the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's starting at AAU. I've never been a fan of AAU. Mm-hmm. I, my oldest is 26. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually, I, I tell people you should go where, you fit mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of it is opportunity mm-hmm. and if you have somebody that's going to give you an opportunity you should mm-hmm. go where mm-hmm. where you fit instead of going trying mm-hmm. to maybe chase a name right unfortunately he he was in love with a girl he followed her to mm-hmm. dublin it didn't it didn't work out and he came back he had a, the coach at glendale liked him but he ended up going to where i went rancho and he ended up tearing his acl and he mm-hmm. hasn't played since mm-hmm. i don't know how you feel about aau but i was tell, telling you earlier about coaching at the ymca and the parents are nuts. Mm-hmm. They think that you know that their kids are mm-hmm. are are better than what they are. Mm-hmm. You know they want they want these ins- they want to yell and scream at the coach. And, and it's like I can't do in one practice, which mm-hmm. is all they get mm-hmm. a, a night. What you should be doing five or six or seven days a week if mm-hmm. you want your child to be able to mm-hmm. dribble the ball. Mm-hmm. As seven eight years old, you know it's like bumper cars they run into each other. What what was your experience? Mm-hmm. Did you have a difficulty in, in in your coaching with a parent that was like, "Well, my son should be playing," oh. and then and then how do you how did you deal with that? Most of you know, the answer is yes, and uh, most of the time, coaches that have a lot of stature, you know, you talk about guys that are in the Hall of Fame, they they're still dealing with it too. Although, because they have so much stature, it's a, you can quiet that family down a little bit more. Um, when you're a young coach, I got the job at Alabama. I'm the head coach at Alabama. I'm 30 years old. Mm. And uh, anyway, it's part of the turf. AAU basketball, traveling team basketball. There's some. There's a lot of good. There's some bad. Uh, the bad, I think, is that kids they get used to changing teams every time something doesn't go their way. Then they go back to their high school team, and they just change again. Okay, I'm a freshman. I'm gonna go somewhere as a sophomore. I'm gonna change as a junior. I, you know, you see these kids, and sometimes you look back, you say, well, how many schools this guy's been to? Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, stems from the fact that when they're playing traveling team ball, that if my son's not getting enough touches, he's not getting the ball, he's not getting enough shots, or that other kid's featured more than my kid, well, i got to get my kid off this team and put him on a different team. So that's part of it. The good is a lot of times kids get to play against great competition because a lot of the better players, especially at the highest level, you know, you're bringing the best players together. And now I'm a young 15, 16 year old, I look across and say, that dude's a whole lot better than me and I got to get my game right. So there's a, you know, it, it, it encourages kids to, I think, work harder and become better. Mm-hmm. So there's always good and bad. But even at the college level, I can remember I'm coaching at NC State. I've got this kid playing for him. He's a great shooter. I've known him since he's probably in the 
eighth grade, ninth grade. His parents are wonderful. They're just wonderful people. And, uh, you know, we start the year off. He's a good shooter, but he just can't make one. He's in a, you know, he's not playing very well. And we're about six or seven games into the year. And I had put him in the lineup, starting lineup. I took him out of the starting lineup. He was probably five for 45 from the three. I mean, he couldn't make one to save his life. And his mom calls me on the phone, known her forever, wonderful person. And she said, Coach, I, don't understand. I just don't understand. You know, my, my, my son, you know, I, I thought he was just going to be a start in the starting five. And I said, well, here, here's what you should tell your son. Play better and you'll play more. And she said, oh, I, I know, Coach. I know, Coach. But, but, but. And then she kind of went, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa you, you didn't hear what I just told you. Let me say that one more time. I'm going to say it real slow. If he plays better, he'll play more. I mean, I can't make it a whole lot simpler than that. Exactly. If he's five for 45, at some yeah. point I got to look at somebody else. But in her mind or in a lot of parents' minds, you know, when they watch the game, they're, they're watching the game. They're really just watching their son or their daughter play. And that's part of it. We all go through it. And, uh, you know, you just have to realize that I used to tell people all the time, people would ask me about my own children. I had one son play college football at Stanford. I had another son play. Uh, he was with me at NC State and played some at Northridge and was a really good player and and people would say, well, uh, what level do you think your son is? I say, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, the hardest thing to do is evaluate your own child. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. It's no. hard. You, you're seeing everything through rose-colored glasses, and you're not really seeing you know, what he's not doing well or maybe a little bit. You know, and you're also rooting for him. You know, you're mm-hmm. rooting for that, your son to, to play well and to play. You know, even when my son played football at Stanford, uh, and I'm a coach. Mm-hmm. I've been coaching my whole life. Sometimes I'm wondering, why ain't they throwing the ball to him? You know, yeah. they threw it to the other guy. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. you know, and it maybe that's the scheme. Maybe they think the other guy's better. I don't yeah. know, but that's their business as coaches. And I, just, I never wanted to get involved with it. But I do know for parents, uh, it can be tough at times. You know, yeah. and for coaches to deal with that. But they deal with it a little bit in the NBA, but not very much. Yeah. Not very much at all. Yeah. You know, I paid you a salary. Now you're an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a business, all mm-hmm. business here. And so, you know, I've heard guys, head coaches I know in the NBA tell me a story here and there, but not nearly as much as college coaches yeah. deal with it. I told, I, I mentioned before one of the things when I had uh, sent you the DM and the Instagram about I had a bad experience with coaching, and I let the experience – maybe mess me up mm-hmm. because I used to like read the books on basketball. Mm-hmm. I pretty much figured um, I could, I could, if there was already shooters, I would just rebound, mm-hmm. you know, to, to do the thing. But what I didn't like is at the time, especially at the high school level, and I grew up in Long Beach. So, you know, mm-hmm. we had the uh, Ed Ratliffs and the, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, all the uh, Ricky Price. He was he's at a, Santa he was Ana. A, he's a bad boy, by yeah. the way, Ed Ratliff. Yeah. yeah. And, People forget how good he is. Yeah. By the way. And so, and so, they would do a lot of stuff like the players would come late to practice and the coach would still let them play. And when I went to junior college, it happened a couple of times and it irritated me. Cause you know, at, the, at this point, I'm a, you know, you're, you're a young man, you're paying. I'm like, I don't want to be busting my butt in practice. And you, you, the coaches are allowing this stuff to go on. Right. Now I don't know how it is at the D one level, mm-hmm. because if, if you guys sign the contract, so if you sign the contract, are you are you pressured to because you're playing who you think gives you the best chance to win so you can keep your mm-hmm. job? Mm-hmm. Is that how it goes? Because I just I, I I just felt like I had Coach Mickelson. That was my coach at Long Beach Milligan High mm-hmm. School, mm-hmm. and 
man, for years, man, I was mad. I, for you, when I got older, I was mad at him. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I didn't, because as a man, I'm like, how could you do that? You mm-hmm. know, you're rewarding bad right. behavior. Right. And uh, so, so how do you, I mean, you haven't coached, you, you, obviously it's different at D1. Is it the pressure because you want to keep your job mm-hmm. and you're worried about taking care of your family? Or is it just mm-hmm. you are, that doesn't matter. Like you see a person that's coming and putting mm-hmm. in on the work. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously we know star players get different treatment. Mm-hmm. It, it is how the world is. They treat celebrities, you know, they shut down the store, Kim Kardashian. I said, mm-hmm. man, I'm already here. You shutting down the store telling me to leave? Because <laughs> she coming in here? I mean, what, what? my money ain't good. But that's just how the world works. Right. So and, and is that is that the truth? Well, <laughs> uh, it's a great question. I, here's what you have to remember. Coaches, first of all, they want to win. They, they want to win. I, I don't ever... I never viewed it one day of my life like, okay, I have to do this to keep my job. I want to win, period. If I win enough, I'm going to keep my job. It's just those two go hand in hand. If I win enough, um, it's all going to work itself out. So from the coach's standpoint, you're trying always to do what you think is best for the team. Now, here's where it gets tricky. And you you made a great point about the story when you played. There are a lot of different ways to do this. You know, like we – you know, uh, now one thing that does happen is, is if when it, when a coach loses the respect of the players, it's hard to get it back. It's hard to get it back. You know, it's like the train goes off the tracks and it goes off the tracks easy, but to get it back on the tracks is really hard. It's really hard. And so that's probably at times the demise of some coaches, you know, where they've, they've allowed so much you know, leeway to certain players that they kind of lose the whole group, you know, and then that may have happened. I don't know. But coaches want to win. Not the players don't want to win, but players, uh, you know, there's 13 or 15 of them and there's one head coach. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was an assistant coach at UCLA and Jim Herrick was our head coach and we were playing at Cal and I was young. This might have been, I might have been 24 years old and we were going to a shoot around to play that evening and I sit beside him on the bus. We're zipping over there at 11 o'clock, you know, do a little walk through at the gym. And I'm trying to learn everything. And I said, Coach, what's the biggest difference between being an assistant coach and a head coach? And his, how about this answer? He said, lonely. Mm. That was the word he used, lonely. Like when you're the head coach, there's only one of you. Mm-hmm. The assistant coaches, there's three or four of them. And every now and then they can get in a hotel room and they can, they can say, ah, I can't believe we did that. You know, we can't. Why do we switch this? Or we should be playing that guy instead of him. But yeah. when you're the head coach, you're, you're the CEO. You're the guy that sits at the top. And you have to make decisions that are – Sometimes not very popular. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes you make them wrong. You make a lot of wrong decisions. You think, I need to play this guy instead of that guy, or we need to do this or that, or, you know, we're getting ready to play this team, and I really want to look at, you know, running this or looking at our zone or whatever it may be, the decisions you make. And sometimes you make the wrong ones. And that's okay because, you know, you know when you sit in that seat, it's kind of a lonely seat. Mm -hmm. But I think coaches, the most part, now – we got some wackos out there, like in every profession, but the most part, guys, they're, they're trying to win. Mm-hmm. Now, they may go about it a completely different way than somebody else would. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's, that's their prerogative. They're the head coach. They can coach any way they want to. They can do, do it however they want. And whether it's they survive a long time or a short time, you know, time will tell. Mm-hmm. But coaches want to win, I think, and uh, they're not really doing things to say, okay, I got to do this to keep my job. I just want to win, man. Yeah. I want to win. I want to take Alabama farther than they've ever been in the tournament. I want to mm-hmm. – you know, I, I, you know, I'm aspiring and I'm ambitious. I want to conquer this. I want to stand at the top. I want to get to a Final Four. You know, really, that's, that's kind of what's driving every day, you know, the decisions you make, which sometimes they're not very popular decisions. Yeah. Sometimes they're hard to make mm-hmm. sometimes. And sometimes 
it may be a, a great player that has a lot of potential that you have to sit down because maybe he's not he's not coming on time or he's not practicing hard or whatever it may be you know so there's a million decisions um, that coaches have to make and uh, they're not going to always be right a lot of times they're going to be wrong a couple more things on coaching then we'll get into the state of today's game mm -hmm. uh, your most memorable win and your and the loss that has stuck with you for your whole entire life, whether it was as a player or as a coach? Well, I've had I've, I've been very lucky, let me just say this. I've had some great, great wins. Obviously, we won the national championship and, and when I was at UCLA as an assistant coach. Um, when I was at Alabama, we, we went to the Elite Eight, which they've never been back, only one time in the school history, and we had to beat Syracuse uh, in the Sweet 16 uh, to get there. And prior to that game, in the second round game, Stanford was 30-1. and one. Uh, They had Josh Childress. They were really, really good. Mm -hmm. Our team was a team. I think we got in the tournament. We our record was like eighteen and twelve. We were just kind of. We were just. We kind of got in there in the end. We played good at the end, but we upset Stanford, who was the number one team in the country, who was also the number one seed of the number ones. You know, they were the yeah. top seed. Yeah. That one was really special. I remember at NC State, my first year at NC State. Um, you know, we beat Villanova, who was a one seed. Okay in the NCAA tournament. And then the, the two years after that, Villanova went back-to-back -back national championships. We knocked him out that the year before. So there's, there's been a lot of great ones. I still go back, and uh, it's interesting. Yes, that's a great question, by the way, Terry, because my college roommate, his name was Jim Farmer, played in the NBA uh, four or five years, and uh, we, we had a really nice team at Alabama. Derek McKee played 15 years in the league, and, and we had a good team. But we were a two-seed in the NCAA tournament we were my, my last year of college, and we believed we were going to the Final Four. Uh, we, we, we were good enough uh, to do it. It was the very first year of the college basketball having a three-point line. Okay. We get to the Sweet 16. Rick Pitino is coaching Providence. Mm -hmm. Billy Donovan, who's now the head coach of the Chicago Bulls and was at Florida for years, is his best player. Mm -hmm. And they utilized the three-point line. It was the first year for it. A lot of coaches really – weren't sure how to incorporate it into their system. And uh, Rick Pitino did. And, boy, they drove it hard and pitched it, and they just they were jacking up threes and making them. And, you know, they're getting three, you're getting two. They're getting three, you're getting two, you know, throughout a game. But uh, we got upset in Louisville in that Sweet 16 game, and I was 23 years old. And uh, it still hurts, man. It still <laughs> hurts. And Billy and I have talked about it throughout the year. Like I'm like, dude, man. I still haven't gotten over that one. Yeah. And uh, my roommate, Jim Farmer, and I, we, we talk about it all the time because we felt as players, you know, your window as a player, as a college player, you know, it's not a 20-year. You only got a couple years in yeah. college, and we had a chance, and uh, we didn't get it done. So that, that was pretty painful. Yeah. So I know you've been – so you say you were scouting for the Mavericks. Luka's, uh, mm -hmm. Luka's uh, is a remarkable player. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you look – obviously it's a different from – Division One, the NBA, the players. When you look at the game, is frustrating to me now because there's a lot of load management for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. Then the pundits kind of mm -hmm. there's this whole debate. Everything is, you know, uh, Jordan or LeBron. Obviously, in '83, Jordan was at North Carolina, so mm -hmm. he's probably mm -hmm. around your time. I I was born in '75. I actually grew up on Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, I thought before well before LeBron, I thought Magic was one of the greatest players I've ever seen. <laughs> You're right. Uh, for simply from <laughs> you win it in college, you come your first year in NBA, you win it. It's just to me, there's just there's really no comparison to that. And people will say now, well, oh well, he wasn't a great shooter. Well, 
in that area that wasn't really that that wasn't mm-hmm. really the focus. Mm-hmm. But for to to be able to involve, as you know, the team. Mm-hmm. So I got to try to tell some of the little, the little kids. Mm-hmm. Look, everybody is is five players on the court. One, other people have to know their role. Mm-hmm. You have to play. You know, everybody can't be John Lennon. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Some <laughs> other people got to got to contribute. Do you think that? I mean, how do you feel about the NBA now? Are you do you do you enjoy it, or is it just it. like are you I love it? Okay. I love it. Now, let me you you brought up so many great things we can talk about. I, I find it interesting now too. Love people love to go uh, Jordan, LeBron, and I always say time out. First of all, Magic number one. If you ask most people that are a little bit older as well, and uh, you said if you had to start a basketball team tomorrow, who's the first player you gonna have start that team? Most people would say Magic Johnson because what he did for the for everybody and he was six foot nine and passed and he could play center i mean he did it all i mean the guy the guy was just and i've gotten to know him a little bit and i just love him he's a phenomenal human being and personality and you know he walks in he lights the room up he's amazing but then i tell people i'm not going down that road i'll go lebron or kobe i mean i'll go uh michael jordan or kobe okay, okay. lebron to me is is kobe bryant had the same kind of killer approach that Jordan had I think you know it was I'm I'm not here to be your buddy we're not buddying around we're not going to dinner after the game Mm -hmm. I'm here to kick your ass period Mm -hmm. that's that's my job Kobe to me was a he was a different breed in that regard Mm -hmm. like Jordan Jordan was that way yes so those two guys are to me um, they're up there with you know Mount Rushmore's of basketball more than anybody um, but I, I like the, the pro game. What I don't like about the pro game is if you go back and younger people won't they won't relate to this at all. But if you go back and you think of Phil Jackson and Jerry Sloan at the Utah Jazz and and Larry Brown and some of these guys that coached uh, Boston and uh, way back, everybody had a different system and they ran different things. And it was a if you played Utah or you played at Seattle or you went to play. Wherever you played, it was different. Now, everybody's pretty similar. You know, they they kind of run slot ball screens, and you know, they pick and roll and dive. And so each team, it's kind of evolved where the game is, and that's what I don't like. I, I think we lost some of that uniqueness mm-hmm. of each coach, uh, the legendary coaches. You know, like Phil Jackson coming in, uh, you know, with with his whole system and the way he ran. Uh, you know, the triple post and all the things he did. You know, no, nobody could match it. No, nobody knew how to teach it. Um, people tried. They really didn't know all the ins and outs and what they were trying to do. And I go back. Jerry Sloan was probably one of the great ones. Don Nelson Sr. was phenomenal all those years. Lenny Wilkins. But everybody was different. And I liked that back then. So I don't like sometimes when I watch games, it's, you know, you could just put a different jersey on tomorrow and we always do the same thing yeah. on every team. Yes. Um, the players have gotten better, a lot better. That's one thing that people, you know, uh, probably don't appreciate as much. You take the KDs and, you know, at their size, at their, you know, height wise and their bodies. And, you know, now the other thing that's happened in the NBA is the center has, it's like dinosaurs. They're gone. We don't, they're, they're not around anymore. I was at a party a few years back and it was Shaq. Uh, David Robinson, mm-hmm. Ralph Sampson. Mm-hmm. There was a fourth one. They were they were standing there, and I was sitting there talking to these guys. And I asked them, I said, "Where'd you guys go? Like all of a sudden, there's nobody like you anymore. There's mm-hmm. no centers. There's no dominant low post guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
big kids don't want to be centers anymore. It's like a bad word to yeah. be a center. Yeah. And uh, so that, that kind of bothers me because if you go back and look at some of these big guys, the way they played around the basket, Shaq dominated Kareem. He's another one, by the way, that he's left out of the greatest of all time yeah. conversation. Ridiculous. And I kind of always go, time out now, guys. There was this guy that played at UCLA. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget, he was a back-to-back-to-back -back national player of the year three straight national champions, I think six world championships in the NBA, led the NBA in scoring. I think he was an 18-time All-Star. I mean, and sometimes we don't want to – and shot a hook shot that nobody has been able to replicate. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. In any sport, take a golfer, a quarterback, or baseball player, a hitter, he was the leading scorer in the history of the NBA until this past year when LeBron passed him. And his patent shot was a, a sky hook that nobody else could replicate. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't happen in yeah. any sport. Yeah. So for me, he's left off that uh, yeah. discussion. He and should they changed be in the there. rules. And they changed the rules <laughs> yeah. to try to stop him. He couldn't so, dunk. Yeah. Took the dunk out of the game yeah. for a while. So uh, it's different. You know, times evolve and change. Yeah. But uh, I think Kareem is in that group. Yeah. For the record, I'm a LeBron guy. Like I say, Magic Magic has always been – I grew up on Magic. I, I had his Converse. Uh, I'm a LeBron guy. I'm a LeBron guy right now. But I, but I like different players. I like people that get in, in, in team involved. I'm with you. I, I don't like the game because everything's screen and roll. Mm -hmm. uh, just pick out the uh, – mm -hmm. try to go for the mismatch and the tack. Mm -hmm. there's, really, there's really no system. Which I mm -hmm. think if they ran the system, you can work. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's move on to the topic I wanted to talk about, Reggie Bush and the Heisman. Mm -hmm. now, now you had – listen – I'm I'm probably on the opposite <laughs> spectrum with everybody here, and and I don't want to get into the political elements and stuff because mm -hmm. you know that's just a whole another thing with people like oh but I ne but the reason I feel he shouldn't get his Heisman back because you run into the those were the rules at the time mm -hmm. you know those were the rules unfortunately a lot of times we want to go back and change things mm -hmm. and it'd be you know yeah it'd be great if we could make a lot of things right. Mm -hmm. You know, if anybody should probably get something, it probably should be Ed O'Bannon because he was the mm -hmm. one that they used the likeness for for the video games, if anything, mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. But I think with Bush, you broke the rules, first of mm -hmm. all. You know, I mean, that's been my biggest issue with rewarding people for bad behavior mm -hmm. because that shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sends. And I, I even hate using that sends a bad message because a lot mm -hmm. of times people don't care about the mm -hmm. message, man. Mm -hmm. If we just being honest, a lot of people just don't care. They just care about the product. I know you think differently, but if I would, he, he, he shouldn't get it. It was stripped mm -hmm. for a reason. Sorry. In people's minds that followed the sport that year, we know you were the Heisman Trophy winner, but in, in, in how, how the rules were set, nah, I don't think he should get it back. Well, <clears throat> I disagree. <laughs> now, and here's why I disagree, and this is a, it's a great topic. First of all, I think, you know, rules get broken. I've, I've been involved in it, and, and I've, I've been on the other end of that, so I, I get it. And there, there should be penalties. And penalties were levied against USC, the football program, that were pretty, pretty harsh, you know, for, for what was going on. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the other major programs, Alabama, Ohio State, there's a bunch of them out there. Um, first of all, Cheating is part of the game. I don't, I don't care what anybody says, and it, it happens, mm -hmm. okay? And USC football really got hammered hard. Mm -hmm. What he did on the field, in my opinion, stands alone by itself. Now, I, I may be on an island by myself on that, mm -hmm. which I think what he earned was he earned that as an individual player. The team got penalized. Uh, it hurt his reputation. Mm -hmm. 
probably hurt maybe future earnings in a way. And so I still think the Heisman Trophy is something he earned by how he played. Mm -hmm. I think them taking that away from him, in my view, was vindictive. It's, okay. it's, a, it's a position of, um, I'm not going to let you have any joy from this. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we're going to hurt your team and the school, and we're also going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe the NCAA does that a lot. Okay. I do. That's my, that's my opinion. I, I might be wrong. It's the same reason, different but the same, and, I, and I've had this discussion with a lot of people in baseball. I believe Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I, I do. Mm -hmm. um, he's the best hitter of all time, period. Mm -hmm. End of story. Did he bet on baseball later? You know, we can debate, and he's been in and out, and, you know, all the things. And, um, but his accomplishments as an individual player, I think Reggie Bush, di they're different yes. but similar in that mm -hmm. I just believe that um, – he should have that. He should be recognized as the Heisman Trophy winner of that year, period. End of story. Okay. I like the point that you made about being vindictive mm -hmm. because that does change my view a little. Mm -hmm. If somebody's doing it, like you say, with Pete Rose, it's clearly mm -hmm. an agenda mm -hmm. because there's 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 been worse people that's in the hall than betting on the game, you mm -hmm. know. And and like you say with Reggie Bush, he did earn it because he he was he was a mon he was a period. monster that year. Yeah, period. And so that's it. But look, man. But I, we can agree. We can dis. We can agree to disagree. Oh right? yeah, all yeah. That's that's that's, a, that's the beauty of sports, right? Everybody, you know, what I'm saying everybody's not gonna always uh, uh, see eye to eye on the same thing. But look, Mark, I appreciate you coming and uh, doing uh, taking your time to do the show. It's been great talking to you. Um, I love basketball. I hope um, you know you get back into scouting or whatever you're going to enjoy. I think you know scouting will probably be better. You're you 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 you're supposed to be aging like fine wine. You get back into coaching. You, you see, you still got all your hair. You get back, coach. These crazy kids is transferring every week. Your hair might start falling out. Uh, but thanks a lot for coming on the show. I, I really really appreciate you taking your time. Thank you very very My much. My pleasure. Thank okay. you. And that's it. We're wrapping it up. Episode 6 of Never About the Cake podcast. Follow us on uh, Twitter. Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram. Follow Cole on Twitter. Follow Cole on Instagram. Just don't follow us home. <laughs>